is because uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. Uh, that's one of our foundational beliefs. Uh, this uh, Wednesday series is on foundations of the faith. We began some time ago to lay a foundation in the Bible, and we spoke about its character and how the character of the Bible becomes the bedrock for all else that we believe. Then we moved on to God Almighty and investigated as best we could his manifold perfections, his attributes, his characteristics. And now we're venturing to study the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. For your information, when we finish this topic, and I don't know when it'll be sometime, uh, we'll investigate the third person of the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit. And then we'll move on from there. In prior weeks, we spoke about Jesus, and I made the declaration which just about everyone here agrees with, he is God. And then after that, we spoke about the fact that he's also man. Last week, we mentioned, uh, I hope in some detail, that he is not just man, he is our substitute. And now tonight, I want to talk to you about this declaration, he is alive. Do you agree with that? Well, I have to tell you, many out there, well, yes, that's something to be excited about. And yet, for some people, it isn't a round of applause that the living Savior motivates them to give. Uh, for some, when you make the statement, Jesus is alive, they make the response, can't be. So in fairness to those who deny that Jesus is alive, that he's risen from the dead for tonight... I want to talk to you about why those who say it can't be, say it can't be. And so I want to cover, I hope as fairly as I could, alternative theories to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have tried to sum up the major ones. There are collateral ones, but I think I will cover tonight all of the major alternative explanations. You've heard of these, most of you, but let's deal with it anyway. And then, Lord willing, next week, let me make some positive proofs to you uh, that the Lord Jesus is in fact alive. But for now, let me just tell you as we begin, those who say with regard to the claim that Jesus is alive, no, can't be, usually do so for this reason. They simply say, dead people do not rise from the dead. A and that is sort of normally the case. Once you're dead, that's sort of it. And so they say dead people, since dead people don't rise Normally from the dead, therefore Jesus did not rise from the dead. And then they say, end of discussion. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? No, not at all. See, it's not a reasonable argument. That people do not normally rise from the dead is absolutely no proof that Jesus did not rise from the dead. That resurrection up from death is a very improbable occurrence does not mean that resurrection from death is an entirely impossible occurrence. So the thinking is illogical to begin with. Yet for many, that is the basis of their denial of the fact that Jesus is alive. 
So they have to explain what happened back there 2,000 years ago in the first century, for surely something happened. There's volumes of factual evidence that has to be processed and explained. And if you do not choose to let it be explained by the resurrection, you have to come up with alternative theories. How do you explain the empty tomb? And how do you explain the post-resurrection appearances? And how do you explain the transformed disciples and how do you explain the movement from worship on Sabbath day to Lord's day and on and on and on. So folks have come up with alternative explanations denying the possibility of resurrection. And so let's begin and I'll tell you one of the most popular. It's called the swoon theory. Many of you are familiar with it. It goes like this. Jesus did not rise from the dead for a simple reason. He never died. You can't rise from the dead if you ain't dead. So folks who hold to this theory say Jesus did not die. He merely fainted. He was, in fact, impaled on a cross. But then he went into some kind of a coma. And then he was taken down and he was, he was put in a tomb. And because of the cool temperature of the tomb and the aroma of the spices which were used in ancient Jewish burial customs, somehow somehow, uh, they acted as a kind of a smelling salt and he came up out of the tomb and revealed himself to the disciples who mistakenly concluded he had been resurrected when in fact he had merely been revived, not resurrected. He simply woke up. He didn't rise from the dead because he never died. Would I be too critical if I said, I find that one plum hard to swallow? And I'll tell you why. You see, there were people there at the time. Uh, they were on the scene. And they apparently were so convinced that Jesus was dead, they treated him as such. And they prepared him for burial. Let me call your attention to John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. It's up on the screen if that's a little more convenient for you. Let me read this. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. Joseph took away the Lord's body. And here's the second person who was on the scene. Nicodemus came also, who first came to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Folks, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were right there. Their experience with the crucified Jesus was not secondhand. It was firsthand. They handled his body. They prepared it for a fitting burial and it 
protected, apparently. No signs of life, though surely if there were, they would have. So the swoon theory just doesn't hold water. They, Joseph and Nicodemus, treated the Lord Jesus as if he was a dead person. I don't think they would have done that unless they were sure he was dead. And so they prepared him for burial. And not only this, do you know something about the Roman military? Think what you will of them. They excelled in this area. It was the area of executing others. They were masters at execution. And they knew when they had succeeded in carrying out the task. There was no mistake in their mind that when they sought to kill someone, that person actually was killed or not. They were experts in life and, more importantly, death. Were they deceived about this? Did they have contact with a merely swooned and fainted Jesus or did they confirm that he was dead, having been pierced through on the cross? Well, to be certain that the cross accomplished its purpose of execution of Jesus of Nazareth, you know about this, they rammed a spear into his side and they did it so as to make close observations of what then would happen. And you know what happened. The liquids of life, water and blood, oozed out of him, thus confirming that he was dead. The New Testament records this. John chapter 19, verses 31 to 34. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath asked Pilate that their leg, their, plural, their, there was more than one crucified, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. You break the legs of those who were impaled on the cross so as to hasten the process of death, you see. The soldiers therefore came and did this. They broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him, that's Jesus, but coming to Jesus when they saw that he was, what does it say? already dead. They didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers, here we go, pierced his side with a spear and immediately there came out blood and water. The legs of the victim would support him off of the cross, break the legs, and the whole weight of the body would pull him down and the victim's death would be hastened. It would be a death of asphyxiation. No lung capacity to breathe in and out. There was no need to do this, can't you see? Because they, when they went to do this to Jesus, discerned he was already dead. Don't you see? If Jesus merely fainted and then was revived rather than resurrected, folks, he would have had to survive, not one, but all of the following. He would have had to survive a severe beating and a loss of blood. He would have had to survive a crucifixion with a further loss of blood, a spear wound in his side, entombment with over 100 pounds of spices on his already weakened body, and three days in a cold, damp tomb with absolutely no food or water. Now, if you have enough faith, or should I say foolishness, to buy that, can you believe really that he survived all that and then after all this he woke up 
in a dark and damp tomb and with absolutely no medical assistance after having been impaled on a cross, you see, he managed to move the stone away probably between two to 4,000 pounds, but somehow he managed to do it. And he overpowered the trained professional Roman guards and then walked seven miles to Emmaus on feet that had been recently pierced through with nails. Do you have that much faith? Good night. I don't. Therefore, it's much easier to believe that he was resurrected and not revived. So here is the swoon theory. Can you believe it and call yourself a reasonably intelligent human being? Well, all right. If you don't buy the swoon theory, how about this one? It's called the theft theory. This is the thinking behind the theft theory. Because there was an empty tomb, some have mistakenly concluded that it was empty because the one who occupied it, Jesus, had in fact risen from the dead. Oh, no say those who hold to this theory. That is a mistaken conclusion. This is not the explanation for the empty tomb at all. What really happened is that somebody simply stole the body. All right? Put your thinking caps on. See any holes in that one? How about this one? Who? How about the Jews? Let's blame them because we usually do. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Maybe it was the Jewish authorities. They stole the body. Yeah, that's it. No, they didn't. What would be the motive? How would they benefit? Folks, if anyone had an interest in locating the body, it would be the Jewish authorities who did not want any proof or evidence that what this Radical rabbi Jesus claimed actually happened. He said, I'll rise from the dead. All they would have to do is turn up the body, not steal the body. Just to show you that they did all that they could to avoid this stealing of the body. Let me call your attention to Matthew 27 verses 62 to 66. Here's what it says. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's the Jewish religious leadership, they gathered together with Pilate. They said, Sir, we remember that when he, that's Jesus, when he was still alive, that deceiver, oh my goodness, just when you're on the verge of getting impatient with someone, would you please reflect on the long suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to his own and his own call him a deceiver. And he's still patient, desiring for none to perish, but for all to be saved. They said when he was alive, we remember that uh, uh, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, look, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said, all right, you have a guard, go, make it, that is, the tomb is secure as you know how to. And they did, they went, and they made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Don't you see? Why would they take such painstaking measures to secure the tomb, only themselves to steal the body from it, thus to perpetuate the myth 
that the one who was there is not there, for he rose from the dead. I don't buy the theory that the Jewish authorities stole the body. Well, then how about the Roman authorities? Didn't they steal it? No, once again, why? Why would they want to do it? They're the ones who set this guard to specifically keep this outcome from occurring. No, 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 the Romans didn't do it. They did everything they could to make sure no one could steal the body. You know who would be the most likely ones to steal the body, if anyone did? It would be the followers of the Lord, I think. Not the Jewish authorities, not the Roman authorities, but the Lord's disciples. So does it make sense that maybe they did? Well, it did early on. In fact, this is absolutely the oldest explanation for the empty tomb. And so it's recorded for us in Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15. Here's what it says. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and council together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, and they said, see, so here's what they said. You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. You see, so that's the earliest explanation for the empty tomb. The disciples stole it. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So they fabricated the whole idea. But does it make sense? Is there a factual basis to believe that the disciples managed to steal the Lord's body? No, no, not at all. You, you can't possibly believe that. How, in fact, could the disciples of Jesus have managed to pull this off? Even if they suddenly, these who were scattered timidly and in fear, disappointment, hopeless now that their leader was gone, even if they managed to summon up enough, enough courage to do this, how would they summon up the ability to pull it off? Folks, Roman soldiers stood guard at the tomb day and night, and because people are more prone to fall asleep at night, they divided the night into four watches, and each watch lasted no more than three hours. I have to tell you, that's not a very long period of time in which you are required to stay awake. Some of you ought to try to do it right here now. That's not a long period of time for anyone to stay awake three hours, especially a trained Roman soldier. After a guard stood his particular three-hour watch, another soldier would take his place while the others slept. Therefore, since they rotated the guard duty during the night watches, it's highly unlikely that they all fell asleep at the same time. Do you believe that? That wouldn't stand up in a court of law. It's foolishness. Furthermore... You know this, if a Roman soldier fell asleep, he didn't get a slap on the wrist. If he fell asleep while on guard, he would pay with his life. Well, I want to tell you, that would motivate folks to kind of stay awake, don't you think? The price of falling asleep would be way too high. Now, even if the disciples did somehow succeed in stealing the Lord's body and fabricating the lie of the resurrection... Don't you find it amazing that not one of them seemed ever to slip up and admit to their deception, even in the face of death? Could you explain that to me? I mean, folks, do you know what happened to them? History and the biblical record in conjunction tells us Stephen was stoned. James was beheaded. Philip was crucified. Matthew 
was slain with a sword. James, the brother of Jesus, had his brains dashed out with a club. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Mark was torn to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded with a sword. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten and then crucified. Thomas was killed with a spear. Luke was hanged. Simon was crucified. Folks, though history is full of men and women willing to die for their beliefs, how many are willing to die for what they know not to be true? It doesn't make sense that all of them as one would suffer such excruciating death for a lie, for that which was a fabrication. No, it doesn't stack up. You don't have that much faith to believe they stole the body, knowing the whole thing was a fabrication and were willing to sacrifice their lives for a, that which was fraudulent. You don't buy that. It's contrary to human nature, don't you see? So the swoon theory, I think it's out to lunch. The theft theory doesn't hold water. Do you like this one? The projection theory. Uh, this is based on a known psychological phenomenon. Sometimes when a person is very expectant and needy for a particular outcome, they imagine they have it. They imagine they see it. Like a man in a desert, very thirsty, dying of thirst, longing for some water to soothe his parched throat and imagining it's a hallucination up ahead a very cool oasis and then when he gets there he finds out it's nothing but dry and arid sand it's a psychological phenomenon which we observe and know to be true so the theory is the disciples hallucinated imagined they saw a risen Jesus because this is the outcome they so expected and longed to see. Can you see what the flaw in that theory is? They didn't expect to see him alive from the dead. They didn't hope for it. They didn't long for a risen Savior. They didn't even believe it. Take a look at Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34. Listen, and he, the Lord Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Folks, the projection theory is a miss. They had no expectation of a risen Messiah. They didn't even have understanding of life from the dead. You remember Thomas after the Lord was in fact raised from the dead? Thomas needed proof, and so the Lord invited him to extend his hand into his pierced side. Do you remember that? Thomas wasn't looking for a risen Savior. Thomas had to have proof. Do you remember on that first Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, the first to the tomb, uh, the women were there. It was on, the, on, on this Sunday, and, and they 
they came running back to the male disciples saying the tomb is, is empty. He is risen. He is, a, he is alive. You remember that? And do you, do you remember the reaction of these men who were the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ? It was really wonderful. It's in Mark chapter 16, verse 14. Afterward, he, the Lord Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them. Why? For their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. <laughs> Folks, the projection theory is hogwash. You don't hallucinate. You don't ex imagine something. You have no expectation of seeing it all. They were the most surprised ones in Jerusalem. Don't you see it? The theory doesn't hold water. See, the projection theory is about wish fulfillment. You wish for something so much, you see it fulfilled when, in fact, it hasn't been fulfilled, but they weren't, they weren't wishing for a risen Savior. They doubted a risen Savior. They didn't believe it at all. And not only that, if the appearances of Jesus were just hallucinations, right, it makes me cry too, it's so ridiculous. If this was just a hallucination in the mind of these deceived disciples, you know how you could lay the whole thing to rest? The body. Go to the tomb. Roll the stone back and say, hey, hey, wake up, you who are hallucinating. Look, here's his body. But nobody produced the body. Don't you see it? So here's another explanation advanced by those who say, Jesus is alive? Can't be. They say, no, here's the explanation. The mislaid body theory. You see, the argument for a resurrected Jesus is really strengthened by the fact of the empty tomb. However, there is yet still another possible explanation for the empty tomb, and it is this. The women simply went to the wrong tomb. I'm not saying anything. Because <laughs> it'll get back. <laughs> But even if you buy that, because it is likely, because women are directionally challenged. Okay, I did say. <laughs> soon thereafter, soon, soon thereafter, the male disciples that did. And you know, guys don't get lost. <laughs> we know where we're going. That's why we never have to ask for directions. We know where we're going. Folks, does this really make sense? And if they had, in fact, gone to the wrong tomb... Wouldn't it have been just the easiest thing in the world for the Jewish and or Roman authorities simply to go to the garden and say, hey, you went to the wrong tomb. Here is the right tomb. And then they would open it up and say, and here is the body of this Jesus who was crucified and now is dead permanently. So that theory doesn't work. Let me share with you this last one. It's called the telepathy theory. Yeah, I saved this one for the end. The telepathy theory. This theory says there was, in fact, no literal, physical, bodily 
resurrection of Jesus at all. In fact, what happened is that God sent mental images into the minds of Christ's followers. Why? Because he's a game player, he's a deceiver, and he likes to lie. So he, in fact, lied. He implanted an image through mental telepathy into the minds of the followers of Jesus, knowing all along it was a terrible deception and there is no physical bodily resurrection. Now, folks, if that theory is true, we have just made God out to be a liar. And not only that, it would mean, for instance, that the two disciples going from Jerusalem to Emmaus walked seven miles and carried on a conversation with an image. And not only that, later they sat down at a table and had something to eat with an image. Come on. Here's the deal. If this is the best stuff our best minds can come up with, with regard to alternative explanations for the resurrected Jesus, I don't know about you, but that tells me, whoa, there must be something to it. He must be alive. In a negative way, they prove to me why such investment? Why such intellectual and academic suicide to risk reputations by advancing such foolishness? The best of these theories is at best sheer and utter illogic and foolishness. Why such efforts to disprove something which is not true? Unless it is true. And unless this Jesus who is God and who is man and is our substitute is also alive. And unless he's the God with whom you and I have to make do. And unless a buried and entombed Jesus is far less threatening to me than a holy God enfleshed who will judge me for all sin and ungodliness. If I could just erase from the realm of possibility that he rose up from death, and he is the only avenue to eternal life. If I don't want to travel that way, if I could just erase the resurrected Jesus as even a live option, then I don't have to submit to him. I don't have to yield to him. I don't have to say, come into my life living Lord Jesus. Forgive my sin. And as you were the first fruits alive from the dead, grant to me also that though I die, I too may live forevermore. Can you see what's at stake? So the negative response to the evidence in an unusual and indirect way, proves to me the resurrection, but that's not good enough. And so if the risen Savior wills and allows us to gather together again next week, if he allows us to, 
Would you give me some more of your time and let me next week provide to you positive evidence leading any thinking person to the unquestionable conclusion that Jesus is in fact alive now and will be forevermore. And my only options are to live eternally apart from him or forever with him. So should he will, we'll get together next week. And now, let me, as we close, play my hand and pray on our behalf. To a living Savior, it would make no sense to talk to one still entombed. But the symbol of Christianity is not the cross alone. It's the cross and the empty tomb. It's the empty tomb that gives us hope. It didn't stop with the cross. Cross, comma, empty tomb, exclamation point. He won victory over the last enemy, death, by himself rising from the dead. And by virtue of our faith connection with him, we can say, as did the Apostle Paul, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, no, the sting of death is removed. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you have done. We're not coming close to comprehending it all. This we have much in common with those who followed you as apostles in the first century. They didn't get it, did they, Lord? Nor do we. And yet what we do get is enough to make us sing out, Hallelujah, praise the living Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're in the world today. You inhabit the praises of your people. You've taken up your abode in our very lives. When we open the door and say, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And we look forward to the time when you, alive from the dead, will come again and bring us to that place of eternal life. Oh, God, we will not be confused by foolish theories masquerading as facts. You're not asking us to lay reason aside. Oh, no, you're inviting us to offer a reasonable accounting for the evidence you have so graciously provided for us. It's only reasonable to conclude you rose from the dead. We look forward to seeing you, Lord Jesus, face to face. And until that happens, would you make us to be ones with an insatiable appetite to go here and there and everywhere telling people about the story of Jesus crucified, yes, buried indeed, and then risen up from the grave. This we pray in the name of our living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.